0: You're listening to an Airwave Media podcast.
1: Hey, it's Jean Chatsky. Today, women are in the financial driver's seat. We are entrepreneurs, CEOs, breadwinners for ourselves and our families, and yet we are still uncertain when it comes to our personal finances why is that i tackle that question and so many more in my new book women with money a judgment-free guide to getting more of what you want from your money with help from some of the world's top financial planners and economists i outline a three-part plan for exactly how you can achieve what you want from your money to pre-order yours and get access to bonus materials and giveaways visit womenwithmoneybook.com Her money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money. So start by knowing what you own, what you owe. We can help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more now. Her money comes to you through PRX. Hey everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. welcome to her money. So here's a piece of research that surprised me not one bit, and I will tell you why when I get to the end of it. But here it is. When it comes to career satisfaction, guess which factor matters more than any other. It is not the nature of our work. It is not the money. It's the people, the people that we work with, the person or the people or the colleagues sitting next to you, they have the ability to make or break how happy you are at work. This is according to a study by Census Wide. Respondents were asked what made them value their careers, and 39% said it was the people they worked with that were the most important factor. And I gotta say, this is a lesson that I learned when I left what was probably my most favorite job before the one I have now, which was being an editor and a writer at Smart Money Magazine. I missed the work, but boy, oh boy, I missed my friends like crazy. The moral of the story, your work friends count. And if you're lucky, you might also have a work wife my guests on the show this week erica cerullo and claire mazer they are WorkWives. they're founders of the popular fashion and design website of a kind they're out with a new book inspired by their relationship work wife the power of female friendship to drive successful businesses and they're joining me on skype erica and claire thanks so much for being here Thank you so much for having us. We're so excited to chat with you. We are excited to have you. And I've got to say, I just love your site. I think it is so beautifully done.
2: Oh, thank Thank you. you. That is really nice of you
1: to say. Thank you. Sure. So let's start at the beginning before we dig into this whole business of WorkWives. How did the two of you meet? So
3: we both attended the University of Chicago as undergrads. Um, Erica was a sophomore when I was a freshman. And the story is actually that I was dating a basketball player um, and there was a guy on my hall and he, who lived down the hall from me. And he was like, I know this woman you have to meet. She also dated a basketball player when she was a freshman. As if that was somehow like- Browns for a friend. for a friendship. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was totally ridiculous. However, we did meet for a friend date in the cafeteria in the dining hall. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest was sort of history. We became really good friends. Um, Erica sort of had a took a big sister role in my life throughout college. And we, you know, we really bonded over career ambitions, over a love of, I think, a lot of the same sorts of, magazines and books and especially design things. We um, would spend a lot of weekends shopping uptown discovering new designers. We really loved finding young designers who we felt like hadn't, no one had ever heard of, having pieces that felt really special and learning the stories behind them. And ultimately that sort of passion was the basis for the idea of Of A Kind.
1: Were you... Back when you were still in college, already talking about launching some sort of business together, how long did the gestation take? Um, We weren't talking about launching something together at that point, but we definitely, I think...
2: Back to what Claire said, we, we had these like sort of shared ambitions. We both really had this strong sense of wanting to have a sense of ownership. Um, I don't think we recognized that as entrepreneurial uh, drive when we were maybe 19 and 20, but we really liked building things from the ground up. We were both heads of sort of creative organizations in college that allowed us to bring up, put on like sort of large scale events on campus and really enjoyed that experience And so when we moved to New York, we were both working in different fields. Claire was in arts management and I was working in magazine editorial. Um, And we did, you know, starting probably in like 2008, started to just identify other women who had started businesses that seemed sort of aspirational to us. And one that we were obsessed with at the time was this restaurant in the Lower East Side called Sorella that unfortunately is no more. Um, but it was started by two friends. And we were like, that's just so cool that they did this thing together. And they were, you know, maybe just a couple years older than us. Um, And I think it's kind of, it was kind of one of those experiences that made it feel more within reach for
1: us Mm -hmm. uh,
2: than maybe it had been a few years prior.
1: Over the course of the series of podcasts that we've broadcast, I can think of a few businesses that have been started by female friends, the founders of The Quilt, are friends. Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg, founders of The Skim, were friends. Jennifer Hyman from Rent the Runway started Rent the Runway with her friend Jenny Fleiss. I mean, I I think if I dig back in my database, I could just go on and on and on. So what are signs that say to you that a, a friendship actually has the potential to become a successful partnership?
3: I think for us, you know, there's a couple of things. One is obviously like with any relationship, there really has to be trust, but I think there also has to be a level of accountability that you feel to one another. Um, I think one of the reasons that Erica and I work so well together is because we both really feel accountable to each other's high standards. And I think we've both always had high standards, but not about the exact same things. And that means it just raises the stakes for each of us. So, you know, if I have really high standards about design and Erica has really high standards about grammar, then that just means that we both feel compelled to sort of up our game in each of those areas. And it makes us so much stronger. So I think, you know, it's about trust. It's about accountability. It's about having similar sense of standards. And then I
2: think similar work ethic is obviously really important. You have to be willing to be vulnerable with one another. Um, you have to be willing to say like, look, I'm having a really hard time right now, um, either because of this thing that's happening in our workday or you know this thing that's happening separately. And you can't be scared that you're gonna be judged Um, for, you know, feeling down or um, not being as productive as you want to be or feeling like you're behind. Um, And so you have to be able to express those things um, and not feel like you're showing your cards, or, you know, that this is a competitive relationship or that you have to hide those things from someone.
1: When you start talking about vulnerability, all of a sudden you're talking Yes, about friendship, but this is, I think, where we get into work wife territory. So what exactly is a work wife?
2: Yeah, (laughs) we're both looking at each other. Do you want to take this or I'll take this? Um, A work wife is someone who you have a personal and professional bond with. It's someone who you can be, you know, your whole self around um, and who allows you to bring your whole self to um,
1: your work. And and that vulnerability is a is a part of that, right? You have to be able to bring your life to work. I mean, how is that different from just being good colleagues? I mean, I think with good
3: colleagues, you know, there's a sense that, you know, you you might work well together and you might, you know, feel like you're really good partners on a project, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're coming in and saying, Hey, listen. Um, you know, I'm excited for this meeting, but I got to tell you, I've got some personal drama going on at home, and if I seem a little out of it, that's why. So just bear with me. And I think, you know, that's the difference. That's that's a vulnerability that you can share with your work wife and say, you know, just uh, <laughs> bear with me, you know, through the good times and the bad times, and understand that they impact my work.
1: Does work wife
2: have to be female? Um, the way that we look at it in the book, um, we de- sort of define work wife as a relationship between, you know, sort of two or more women. But I think. We also believe that the approaches and the tactics that we write about in the book can certainly be applied um, in relationships with any sort of like minded people. What we think is so interesting about the
3: relationships between women at work is that they really start to defy the basic principles of office rules that were written by men a really long time ago and that we all sort of just internalize. So things like don't bring your personal life to work. Well, you know, there are certain things that are unique to women that make it impossible not to bring your personal life to work. For example, being pregnant. You can't leave a pregnant belly at home. That's a very personal thing that you bring to the office with you every single day. Um, And so we start we think that, you know, in looking at these relationships, there's something a little different about the way women bond in the workplace.
1: It also gets to the issue of friendship versus competition, people scaling the ladder, getting in each other's way rather than supporting each other. I mean, I've worked in a number of different office spaces throughout my career, some dominated by women, some not dominated by women. But there's this perception that women aren't always great to each other at work. And it all too often, even today, is sometimes true. Where does... Finding a work wife, cultivating a work wife, or even if you don't want a wife, just some good work friends come into the equation.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying, you know, I think what you're saying is true and is a real challenge. And I think we hope that some of that is changing. I think, especially 10, 20 years ago, um, longer. Um, Especially in workplaces that were dominated by men, there might have been the there might have been this sense that oh, only one woman will be promoted, or only one woman uh, will have a senior leadership position, and so there you know women were basically pitted against one another for those roles, and it was very hard to to feel like you weren't competing um, because you ultimately were. Um, and we think that there is change happening there, and that as more and more women you know rise through the ranks of a company, there are opportunities for women not to be the only One at the table um, and to be able to partner with other women and not feel like that's like doing a disservice to their career in some way, which is a crazy thing to have to think. But I mean, I think it is really just about sort of feeling people out um, in these working relationships and, you know, not throwing yourself full force at, at a new friend necessarily, but starting to have these conversations or bonding moments where you are revealing uh, certain things about yourself that maybe aren't purely professional, seeing how they're received and seeing if it's reciprocated. And I think, you know, some of it just takes time. Some of it uh, takes figuring out if you're on the same page. Some, some of it takes work, being in the trenches on, a, on an intense project together and seeing that you're both the sort of people who stay till 10 o'clock at night to make sure it gets done right.
1: If you're in a position of leadership at at your company, I also think there's something in allowing this sort of real-life experience and emotion to kind of permeate the atmosphere, right? I mean, if those of us who are moms, and and I know we've got a baby joining the conversation, (laughs) we shouldn't pretend that he's not here. Why don't you tell us? How old is Cam? Cam? Cam is seven weeks. Um,
3: he'll be eight weeks on Sunday and you know, what you're saying rings so true. Um, writing the book and, and, you know, sort of having to work through our own feelings about what it means to share the personal in the office space really, I think shifted our own perspective on leadership and management and making clear to our team that we, you know, acknowledged their personal lives in the workplace. And especially when it came to my own pregnancy, Um, It was really one thing I grappled with was the idea of keeping the secret from them because, you know, there's this expectation that you don't tell people that you're pregnant for the first trimester. Um, Meanwhile, I was so sick um, and I was um, also just emotionally and psychologically dealing with a lot, you know, knowing I, I it was my first kid and knowing this huge change was coming. I found it really challenging not to share with them. And I ultimately ended up telling them pretty early on in my pregnancy before I was public about it with a lot of people because, you know, I said to them and, and felt that it was going to impact them more than it was going to impact a lot of people in my life. And I felt like they deserved to know and I wanted them to know and I wanted them to, to sort of be a part of the experience with me.
1: I think that's so true. I just came through an experience over the Christmas holiday where my son had some pretty significant surgery. And at the same time, one of my close colleagues, his mother-in-law passed away. And I mean, I have never felt so supported by my work colleagues. From calls and texts and slacks to just people being willing to help me pick up the things that I couldn't do just because I wasn't capable of doing them at that time. And if I'd felt like I couldn't bring any of my personal life to work, that just wouldn't have been possible. You know, I would have had to just take a leave, distance myself, and then getting back in would have been a lot harder.
2: I think that the getting back in part is something that we talk about a lot too. And I mean, to go back to The example of Claire's pregnancy, um, you know, she has been out for the last, well, since Cam was born, seven weeks, (laughs) Um, pretty much exactly. And as part of the sort of maternity leave structure, what we decided to do is that two days a week in the afternoon, I come and see her at her house where we are right now talking to you. And we do work and we go over an agenda of updates that I think that she, you know, should hear And we review things that she um, has the time and headspace to review. And then we just sort of catch up on general, you know, business and life things. And I think it has made us both feel, one, like, you know, neither of us are out there sort of drifting on our own, because that was something I was worried about, of being in an office without Claire, who I've worked with now, you know, for almost nine years, and two, like when she when she does come back two days a week, starting in a couple of weeks and full time starting after that. Um, it, the onboarding or the like ramping up won't be so hard because she's already
1: up to date on pretty much everything that matters. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about how the two of you handle financial matters, both as business partners and as friends. But before I do that, just a brief word from Fidelity Investments. I want to remind everybody that conversations like this one about work wives are proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. What if you could demand more from your money? What if you could make your savings work as hard as you do? And what if that helped you reach your financial goals faster. It all starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, Fidelity will work with you to evaluate your investment options and different ways to help you grow your savings. Get started today at fidelity.com slash now. And we are talking with WorkWives, Erica Cerullo and Claire Maser, founders of Of A Kind. One of the things that we need to deal with as business partners, but sometimes also as friends, are the fact that we come at finances from a different perspective. So can you talk about how the fact that you are similar but not totally the same has been helpful in this regard? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting when it comes to
3: our financial perspectives in that We actually, when it comes to the way we handle our personal finances, we're pretty different. We don't have the same um, sort of methods to our madness. And I think just, you know, all the psychological trappings are, are different. But for whatever reason, when it comes to our perspective on business finances, we have really been sort of the same since day one. And I think that come, that's in part um, a result of the fact that when we started the business, we just didn't have much funding. We had a little bit of friends and family money. And so we started from this place of always being really, really scrappy um, and really reticent to spend any money at all. And we've sort of carried that with us through the various stages of the business. And I think that that's helped a lot. I think also just knowing each other personally and knowing each other's sort of personal relationship to money helps a lot when we have conversations about how we're going to spend money and how we're going to manage finances. It means that, um, you know, we sort of have a sense of where the other one is coming from, because as I'm sure I don't need to tell you, everyone's relationship with money is so shaped by, you know, how they grew up and what their parents, how their parents handled money and how they learned to budget or didn't learn to budget and right. all And it was a really interesting conversation we had when writing the book, interviewing um, different sets of business partners about how they handled money. A lot of them brought up the fact that, you know, they knew uh, what each other's sort of upbringing looked like and how that shaped their relationship to money and that and having that understanding really helped in difficult conversations about money. Well,
1: how how are you different, Erica? How are you different from Claire? Hmm. Um, it's a good question. Um, I. I.
2: How am I different than Claire? Um
3: Well Erica's very um like Erica's very regimented about her her budgeting. She's yeah. really, really likes a system and a routine, so there's a lot of like different accounts and a lot of different budgeting and all of that.
2: Yes. And I feel like I make lists of, you know, things that I want and sort of like weighing them all the time. It used to be like a saved Google, a saved Gmail email. Now it's an iPhone note on my phone. So, you know, if I, if I like a dress for a couple of months, then it might, I might pull the trigger on it or I wait for it to go on sale or whatever it is. And I'm a lot
3: more impulsive. My, my, I'm just like a constant rotation of purchasing and returning. Oh, um, I hate <laughs> returning.
2: <laughs>
3: I'm constantly returning things. Um, I have a much more sort of like anxious relationship about, th- about money and things where it's like, Oh, well, if I, if I don't buy that, it's going to get sold out and I should get, just get it now. And then think about it later. And, um, you know, I would say I'm, I'm not as sort of responsible when it comes to money as Erica, um, at least in my personal finances, when it comes to the business finances, I am constantly freaked out about them. Um, I mean, I think, you know, now we're in a, a much more sort of secure position than we used to be. Um, we sold the business in 2015, so we have that the security of a parent company, but um, before that was the case, you know, we were always really um, both hyper-conscious
2: of it. Um, But beyond sort of our consumption habits and our day to day spending, I think something that's interesting about our relationship um, as it relates to money is that we started the business when we were when Claire was 26 and I was 27. Um, And so we have been talking about finances together for nine years now, and we have been talking about salaries and uh, how much to pay consultants um, and, you know, and how to save and how to spend um, and all of those things in a way that I think um, has, you know, it's really special to have a relationship like that that has so much financial transparency.
1: Can you share some of your communication tips? Because I've got to tell you, just talking about money is is something that a lot of women, and you probably know this, just have trouble with. We have trouble talking about it with our friends. We have trouble talking about it with our spouses. We have trouble talking about it with people at work. So. What have you found to be the key to this ongoing conversation?
3: I mean, I think a, a tactic
1: that is really
3: helpful is just being really transparent about needs. Um, and it's the same sort of tactic that I think a lot of people you know, advise when thinking about what sort of salary you, you need to ask for. And it's just, what are my sort of day-to-day needs around finances and, and owning those and being really honest about those? I think when it comes to talking about how to spend money in a business it's the same sort of thing it's what what are our priorities in the business and how are
1: we allocating funds accordingly this has been a really really fun conversation thank you so much for being with us thank you so much for featuring us we are really flattered
2: and it was wonderful to talk
1: to you you asked
2: excellent questions thank you for such thoughtful questions and for really
1: understanding what we were
3: getting at with the whole work wife thing
1: absolutely our pleasure we'll be right back with kelly and your mailbag And Kelly is with me in the studio. Hey Kel. Hello. I really like these partners that we feature from time to time. I forget who it was, but somebody told me if you if you start a business, you should never start a business without a friend. And it might have been It might have been Carly and Danielle from The Skim. Really? It might have, but it might have been before that. Somebody might have said it to me years ago. Similar to what we hear about living with a friend. You know, the one thing I didn't get to Mm -hmm. in the interview was this idea of what you shouldn't bring to the office. I mean, where do they say you should draw the line? They talk about their evolution to a place
0: where – when it was just them at the beginning, just them two, and then building on with interns, they were very open. So the line between personal and professional was very blurred. It was a small team. But as they scaled, as the team grew, they had to distance themselves more so that they could maintain that authority at the office and also just better do their jobs as managers. Mm-hmm. Because this makes so much sense to me, is if you get too close, it Becomes difficult to be the authority figure when you need to be, like, or to delegate or to dole out constructive criticism, or, you know, when things do need to be a little more black and white, less emotional perhaps. So they talk about the evolution in the book. They don't give like an exact science according to my memory maybe they do of like these are do's and these are don'ts because i think it's so subjective to your work environment and who you are as people and what the business is but they do get to the place where we found our new happy medium with personal and professional or bringing personal into the workplace so at the office now it's like they're going to know their employees boyfriend's names but they're not going to know like how last night's date went in detail
1: does that make sense? Yeah I, yeah, I do. I think I think you have to if you're in a position of mm-hmm. management especially, there has to be some line. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But but there can still be an there can still be an overall environment where people feel supported and more than feeling supported every single day, mm-hmm. knowing that if something big is going on in your life and you need to bring it up at the office because you have to make the office aware of it so you can just deal with it, that that's okay.
0: And I'm really big on energy. So what I love about this idea of being able to divulge what's happening outside of the workplace and how it could be affecting you at the workplace is so that you feel like you don't have to be fake exactly what you're saying. And so I do find like, for example, like let's say something horrible happens to you before you go to work in the morning, you're bringing that negative energy into the workplace. And if it's a small team, especially you affect the energy of the room right away. And especially if you have been on the team for a longer period of time, you're a senior leader or you're a manager. So being human To me, or what I love about this, being human is saying, hey, I had a really shitty morning. It's affecting my mood. I'm not over it yet. It has nothing to do with you guys, and I'm just going to be over here fuming for the next hour. Keep clear. That's what we do on our team, and it's really helpful because it doesn't put pressure on me to feel like I have to put on a mask as I walk in if I do slip and I'm snarkier, you know my colleagues don't take it personally
1: like right. it, you know it's it's just human it's human and by the way it helps at home too so mm. after a big celtics loss when elliot wants <laughs> me to leave him alone no it's true he's super cranky cuz the big <laughs> they blew a big game and it was a stupid loss and he'll tell me yeah. like i need an hour yeah and then I'll be okay yeah. i'm going to be cranky for an hour it's not you right? that it's not you mm-hmm. that's really really big Huge. let's answer some questions <laughs> It's not you. Let's answer some questions. Okay.
0: The first is from Sharon. I recently saw an advertisement for EllaVest, an investment platform for women. They argue that there is no such thing as gender neutral investing. Can you comment on this concept?
1: So, what we're really talking about here is the entire reason that the Her Money podcast exists. Yes. Women are different. Women are different. And yes, we have different needs when it comes to our investments. We have different needs because we live longer. That's the big factor, right? We statistically still live about five years longer than men. So we need to make our money last five years longer. That takes strategy. We should be planning for that in our saving, but also in how we're going to withdraw our money to make it last. It takes into account the fact that women may be earning less than men, and so our savings rate may need to be more significant. And also, statistically, we're
0: more likely to earn less. So not only are we living longer, but we're earning less. So... That means we need to do different things with our money now and all along the
1: way in order to be at a place where hopefully we're not stressed about money in retirement. Right. I mean, the fact that more women sink into poverty in retirement than men is at the heart of this issue, which is not what we're expecting for the listeners of this podcast. You know, you're here because you're proactive and you're thinking about it now and you're making changes and taking the right steps now, and that's great. But you need to think about your life as a whole, and that means the additional longevity. It may mean some additional reluctance to take risk, Mm -hmm. which has been Um, a tendency among women historically, although we're seeing that change, and that's a very, very good thing. And it does mean taking the wage gap into consideration and figuring out different ways that you can accommodate for it or account for it so that you'll have enough when it comes to the end of the road. That's what it's talking about. Absolutely. And with the investing
0: piece, too, I'm working on an article right now on the mentality of millionaires, Mm -hmm. and I was speaking with Manisha Takor, and she said something to me yesterday, and the light bulb went off. Us as women, we are socialized growing up to not make an action until we feel like we're perfect at it, so not raising our hand until we are for sure we know the answer, not applying for that job until we meet almost 100% of the qualifications for the job itself. The same goes for investing. A lot of times she's finding her clients don't make the first move because they feel like they don't know enough when in fact investing itself like it's learning by doing that's the catch-22 of doing it and becoming a better investor you have to get in the game you just have to start to do it so there's that in this equation and the need for perhaps a different approach to us than other genders or non-genders
1: right and this bias toward inaction when we don't know that we have the perfect answer, the perfect solution is an especially big problem in the world of investing mm-hmm. because there are no perfect answers, mm-hmm. right? When when you ask me what's the best stock, there is no best stock, yep. right? What's the best credit card? I can tell you that. What you <laughs> yeah. know? What's the best insurance policy? I can give you the right answer. Mm-hmm. But what's the best stock? What are the markets going to do? Where's inflation going to go? Those are unknowables and trying to control for them absolutely doesn't Mm -hmm. work. And this is why we exist, and it's why we have this conversation every single week. So great question, Sharon. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Sharon. And now we
0: will do one from Cynthia. I live in California, and the property taxes are painful. I'm trying to figure out the best way to approach this dilemma. My taxes this year will be $16,500. To better plan for next year, I want to put some money away monthly to have that amount ready for this time next year. What is your suggestion? for doing that. Is it a CD? Is it a money market account? What sites are there? Can I educate myself on this? She's just looking for what she should do.
1: So two things to do. First, there are a lot of different search engines that will help you find the best rates on CDs or money markets. If you're going to put the money in a CD, you're not going to want to tie it up for more than a year because that's when you'll need the money to pay next year's tax bill. It's probably better to put it in a high interest rate savings or money market account and go to bankrate.com, go to magnifymoney.com, go to nerdwallet.com. They all have lists of the best savings rate and of the best savings rates. And right now, just to put this in perspective, the average savings account in the country is paying about one-tenth of one percent. These accounts are paying two percent and a quarter percent and there are often no minimums Mm. so there's no excuse really Mm -hmm. for not doing this the other thing that i want to say is i just grieved my taxes again i got a letter in the mail my property taxes are crazy too i got a letter in the mail from a company That does this for a living, basically they file an appeal on your behalf and these companies are everywhere. They take about a third typically of the money that they save you Mm -hmm. for a year or two as their payment. Mm -hmm. I just did this and I just reduced the assessment on my property by about $30,000, which will reduce my tax bill, not by $30,000, but it'll bring it down Dang. a little bit. And every little bit helps, particularly now that state and local taxes are capped at $10,000. Dang.
0: Dang. Yeah. Wow. 30, and by the way,
1: you can do it yourself. You can DIY it. You can apply and do this yourself. I didn't have time to do this myself. <laughs> or you didn't want to. Or I didn't want yeah, to. But, which just fine. But it's okay. I'll pay somebody to do it for me. Well, I don't have to worry about that yet, but it is good to keep in mind. But you will when you're
0: a homeowner. I will someday. And we'll do one more from Patty. I have a company four hundred one 1K and contribute the max. I have no credit card debt. I have a mortgage as my only debt. I have about $50,000 in savings accounts and CDs and not sure if I should be investing in something else or
1: paying down my mortgage. What is the best way to use that money? Generally, when you're talking about a mortgage, the best way to use that money is by investing it in something else. And mm-hmm. that's because the interest that you're paying on a mortgage is fairly cheap. Borrowing costs on a mortgage are fairly cheap. They're also deductible. It's one of the few deductions that we've got left up to $750,000. Although if you owned your house before the new tax law went mm-hmm. into effect, you're grandfathered in at the million. That's nice. And you can do better than that. Right? If you've got a mortgage at 4% and you're deducting off of that, it's costing you about 3%. So the question to ask yourself, and it's the question to ask yourself about any financial trade-off, is if I put that money into an IRA and I invested it in a diversified portfolio where, let's say, it earned an average 8% a year over a long period of time, would I do better? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes, I would do better. So invest it in something else. There you go. Excellent. And in today's Thrive segment, let's talk about some relationship deal breakers in our work wife show. Among the biggest, poor hygiene, (laughs) laziness, geographic distance. Kelly can relate to every single one of these. But would you break (laughs) up with somebody because they were floating too big a balance on their credit cards? According to a survey by Finder, 72% of Americans said they would reconsider a romantic relationship because of another person's debt. Could that narrow your dating pool significantly? It is a distinct possibility. Right now, the average American has about $38,000 in personal debt, and that doesn't include mortgages. The average household has about $7,000 in credit card debt, and one in four American adults are paying off student loans. According to the research, the least desirable type of debt is credit card debt followed by student loan debt. And overall, women are more likely than men to say bye-bye to a relationship if their significant other is in over their heads. Bottom line here, though, knowledge is power. Far worse than debt overall is debt that hits by surprise. If you are struggling to come to terms with your partner and their debt, or worse, think that you may not have the entire picture, might we suggest an open, transparent discussion Wine, by the way, will help. Thanks so much for joining Kelly and me today on Her Money. Thank you to Erica Cerullo and Claire Mazur for the fantastic conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with New York Times food columnist and author Melissa Clark. Get hungry and we'll talk soon.